Our text this morning is Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. But I'd like to begin our reading this morning at verse 21, so we have the full context of Paul's thought. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Lord our God, We come to you this morning and we ask that you would open up your word to us. That in it we might see the Lord Jesus Christ. That your word might take up residence in our hearts. That we might be made more and more like Jesus. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we come now to the final paragraph in the third chapter of the book of Romans. Paul is concluding his initial argument about justification by faith. He has shown that all are under the judgment of sin. He has shown that no one can be justified by what they do. And then he shows that the forgiveness of sins, justification and forgiveness can all be found through faith in Christ. And so this morning we're going to look at three implications of the great doctrine of salvation by grace. Paul has laid out what it means to be saved, that salvation is by grace through faith. But now he's going to come to us and show us what that means for us. And I'd like us to look at three things from our text. First, Salvation by grace excludes boasting. There is nothing that we can boast in if we are saved by grace. 
Second, salvation by grace is for everyone. There is no one that is excluded from salvation by grace. And then finally, salvation by grace upholds the law. That rather than doing away with the law, salvation by grace establishes the law of God. Excluding boasting for everyone and upholding the law. These are the implications of salvation by grace. Well, let's begin then by looking at how salvation by grace excludes boasting. You know, we may ask first the question, why does Paul even continue on with this last paragraph? I mean, he has just given us a crescendo. He has just reached a high height describing the atonement of Jesus Christ. We might expect Paul to end on that high note. That's what a good literary man would do. But you see, Paul is not a literary man. Paul is a preacher, and he's a preacher of the gospel. And he knows that we need to see the gospel, not just from a positive presentation of what it is, but also from a negative presentation of what it is not, so that we can flee false gospels. And so he continues in showing these three implications of the gospel. First, a negative thing about the gospel. That is that the gospel excludes boasting. This is a very important thing for Paul to come to. Because the atonement is at the heart of the gospel and the scriptures. And so Paul begins by excluding our boasting. He says, what is the consequence of being justified by grace as a gift? What are the consequences of by no works of the law will any human being be justified? What does this mean for us? It means that no one can boast or glory in who they are or what they've done. And this is crucially important for us because pride is at the heart of who we are as sinners. It is in our nature to boast and to take pride in things. After all, pride is the great sin of mankind, isn't it? Pride is the very root sin from which all other sins flow. We see this in the scripture as Satan himself is described as having been proud, as having thrust himself up, wanting to be in the place of God. We don't have to get very far in the Bible to Genesis 3 to see that Adam and Eve both were proud. That they wanted to be like God, the scripture tells us. They wanted to know good and evil so that they could be like God. Pride is the sin that we are most susceptible to. It is natural to our fallen state to want to be above other people. Pride also is nurtured out of our sight. It is a problem that hides in the dark places. And worse than that, in all other moral systems, pride is held up as a virtue. You're supposed to be the best you can be. You're supposed to put your best foot forward. You're supposed to show God why you are worthy of His love. All philosophical and religious systems are based on the idea of pride, innate in human nature, that we can do things to please God. 
Pride demands that God approve me for what I have done. Pride is constantly pleading my worth. It says, I am good enough. No, wait a minute, check that. I'm more than good enough. At its heart, pride doesn't need Jesus. Pride says, I am enough. But Paul says that the gospel cuts off pride. The gospel does not say to you that you are useless. It doesn't say that you are valueless. Actually, it's quite the opposite. The gospel tells us that we are of great value to God. But it does say that there is nothing you can do to answer the problem of sin. The gospel tells us that you cannot make yourself right before God. And so therefore, boasting is excluded. Now, what does Paul mean here when he uses this word excluded? He means boasting is shut off, shut out, forever. Perhaps picture in your mind taking something and putting it in a closet. And then shutting the door. And then locking the closet. And then putting a padlock on it. And then pushing a dresser in front of it. Boasting is excluded It is not to be seen at any time and in any place. We are not to glory in anything we have done because salvation is by grace. It is shut off by the principle of faith, Paul tells us. You can't be justified freely by faith and still try to get credit and boast. It is like this. Imagine if someone was very generous with you and they came up to you and they gave you a brand new home. And you moved into this gorgeous four-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath, fully centrally air-conditioned, hardwood floors, brand new house. And some friends came over to visit you and, and they said, this is a nice house. And your response was, Well, yes, it certainly is. I built it with my own two hands. I had to sweat and labor. If you could see the calluses that I got from building this house, it was so much work. I'm not even sure it was worth all the work that I had to put into it. Now, if we were observing this, we would say, you're crazy. You didn't do anything. You got this all as a gift. How can you claim this is your work? But you see, that pales in comparison to us saying that we have worked to earn God's love. Us boasting in our own works pales the comparison to the new house. Verse 28 allows Paul to make specific and clear what is going on. He says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So what then is excluded? What are we tempted to boast in? We're tempted to boast in our works, in the works of the law. And I think the first way that we see this is in our morality. We look around us and we find people who are worse than us. And then we like the comparison. And if we're honest with ourselves... If you look long enough and hard enough, you can always find someone who's worse than you. Someone to make you look good. And so we think, 
that we've got it all together because we're better than this person or than that person. And after all, we like to be honored. We like to think that we can be approved by God, either for what we've done or what we will do. Because even if we say to ourselves, well, we haven't really done things right, our excuse is always, but this is what we will do. We'll be perfect. From this point on, I'm never going to be impatient with my children ever again. From this point on, I'm never going to say an angry word to anyone ever again. And usually when we turn over that kind of new leaf, it lasts maybe about an hour. We realize that nothing we've done and nothing we claim we will do can give us standing to boast before God. But you see, our sinful nature wants a checklist. It wants a list of things that we've done or will do that we can check off and bring to God. And as we stand before Him, say, You owe me, God. Look at what I've done for you. But salvation through Jesus' work does away with all of this. We have no grounding to stand and boast on our morality. The second thing that we are tempted to boast in is our knowledge. And this is especially tempting in a world that cares so little for doctrine and the teaching of the Bible. We think that because we know much about God, that we can take pride and hope in that. We know a lot of things about God. We know about the Trinity. We know about God's attributes. We know about His history and His actions. We need to be very careful here. And I want to take a moment and specifically talk to our young people. Because you come to church each and every week with your parents. And you learn an awful lot. And you go to Sunday school and you're able to answer the Sunday school questions. And you're able to come up with all of the knowledge and information. And you memorize Bible verses. And you go to vacation Bible school and you know the Bible stories. You know an awful lot about God. And that is good. But it can't stop there. It can't stop at just knowing about God. You have to know God. You have to trust the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. You have to commit your life to Him with no reservation to know that He is your only hope. No one is saved by knowledge. We are saved by the work of Jesus Christ. Do you know who knows the most about God? The Bible tells us that it's Satan. Satan is the creature that knows most about God. If you think about it, he was there at the beginning of creation. He was amongst the first beings created. He knew how powerful God was. He wanted to be like God. We're filled with accounts in the Gospels of demons seeing Jesus and declaring that He is the Son of God, and doing that at a time when His disciples are following Him around, bumbling, not sure what's going on. The demons know. James even tells us that the devils believe, but tremble. And they tremble because they know about God, but they will not submit to God. They will not trust the Lord. They will not be redeemed. 
And so we have to remember that just as our morality will not save us and we cannot boast in it, our knowledge cannot save us and we cannot boast in it. If there is anything that you think you have done that makes you worthy of saving or gives you the reason to boast, you're headed down the wrong path. But there is a second, more subtle way that we can boast. Those of us in church realize we can't claim that we have done works worthy of salvation. That would get someone giving you an odd look if you say, I'm earning my salvation through works. But our pride is so crafty that it finds a way to give us credit, even with salvation, by faith. What do I mean by that? If you ask the average Protestant why he is going to heaven, he will tell you that he believed God and others didn't. He will say it's all about his faith. He's justified because of his faith. He had faith and therefore God saved him. Now this is where an important error can creep into our thinking. It's as if God says... I know you can't keep my law, so therefore, I'm going to change things up a bit. I know that there's so many things to be kept from the Old Testament and from the law of God that I'm going to make this much simpler. Now, instead of keeping all the law, all you need to do for your part is to believe. That's your part. And if you do it, then I will save you. Now, what does that mean? That means my faith has become a work. It's what I bring to God to obligate Him to save me. It's what makes me different from someone else. It's no different than if we decided to have a basketball dunk contest. And we went out to the back of the church where the hoop is. And once it became painfully obvious that I couldn't, along with most of you, dunk on a 10-foot hoop, we said, you know what, let's just lower it down to 5 feet and see how that works. Right? We just change the standard. And you see, faith is not a change in standard. There is not one law of works and a different law of faith. When Paul says the law of faith here, in verse 27, he is talking about a principle. We've already seen Paul use the word law in different ways. To mean either the actual law of God or the books of the Bible, here it means a principle. It's the principle of faith. And the principle of faith, by definition, excludes any form of boasting. The very idea of faith is against boasting. Now, if that's the case, how could we boast in our faith? After all, the Bible tells us that our faith is not even our own. It is a gift from God, Ephesians chapter 2. Faith is not our work, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And the scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit works where He wills, not where we will. Now this is very important. I want you to listen closely. Nowhere does the Bible say we are justified because of our faith. Or on account of our faith. The Bible always says we are justified by faith, or through faith. Faith is an instrument to receive what justifies us, the work of Jesus. 
I can't put it any better, so I'm just going to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones. Faith is nothing but the instrument or channel by which the righteousness of God in Christ becomes ours. Faith is not a work. It's not something we do. It's not something that separates us from others. Faith is the gift of God that receives the righteousness of Christ. There is no room for boasting in a gift we've received. The second implication of justification is its applicability to all. Now notice I didn't say its application to all. I said its applicability. Not everyone is saved. We all know people who do not want to be saved. We know people who don't love God, who don't have any time at all for Jesus. And that's why I say applicability. That is, salvation by grace can apply to everyone. We see this in two ways in verses 29 and 30. Paul says, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Paul is once again anticipating an objection. This time, someone might say, does this really apply to everyone? Aren't there all kinds of religions? You know, you may believe in Jesus, but I don't need to. And this is interesting, this aspect of our world, because we live in a world that has a sense of orthodoxy. There are certain things you are allowed to say in public and other things you are not. And if you go against the orthodoxy of our culture, you will be attacked and savaged, usually beginning on Twitter, but not ending there. At the same time, there is a formal kind of relativism in the world today, that there are many kinds of religions. And all that's important is being spiritual, any kind of spiritual. You know the old adage, all roads lead to God? Well, you know, it's even worse today, because now it's not just that all roads lead to God, it's that all roads lead to some kind of God. We don't even have to have an agreement about what God is. And so the question comes, isn't this just about the God of the Jews? And so someone might object to Paul and to say, don't bother me with your law, don't bother me with your view of salvation, don't bother me with Jesus. He may be for you, but he's not for me. In Paul's day, this manifested itself in the way pagans viewed the gospel. You know, believe it or not, in Paul's day, Christians were seen as being irreligious. That is, not religious enough. Because they only believed in one God. They were not religious because they didn't believe in dozens and dozens and dozens of gods. Christians believed in one God. And that he was applicable to all people. And so what Paul is telling us here this morning, as we listen to the message of salvation by grace, is that it is applicable to all people. There is only one God, and therefore we must listen to His message, and His message alone. There is no other God with whom we have to deal. There is no other God who can save. Paul tells us this in 1 Timothy. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, 
It was preached in the book of Acts, chapter 4. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but Jesus. Salvation by grace through faith is so important because there is no other way for a person to be right with God. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So don't waste your time looking into something else. There is no other hope other than Jesus. And this is also why it is so important for us to spread the good news of the gospel. It's the only hope that our neighbors, our friends, our family have. There is only one God, only one message, only one way of salvation. And so it is critical that we bring that message to a lost world. Well, an immediate fear that someone might have when he hears there's only one way of salvation is that he might not be on the inside track. He might be left out. That salvation might not apply to him because he didn't grow up in church. He doesn't go to vacation Bible school. He doesn't a part of a Bible study. What can I do? Now, have you ever been somewhere where there was an insider discussion going on and you pretended to know about something so it wouldn't be embarrassed? This happens to me every time I go to the mechanic. He begins telling me about parts, hoses, doohickeys, whatchamacallits, and what they do. And I stand there with a very serious look on my face and nod and go, oh, yes, that could be a problem. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I have no idea what you're talking about, and I really hope this is not going to cost a lot of money. But I don't want to admit that I don't know what's being talked about. Right? And this is a fear that we have. So someone might have this fear. I don't know all this insider language. Pastor, I had enough trouble hearing and pronouncing propitiation last week. I don't know what it means. How can salvation be for me? But Paul lets us know that this one way of salvation is applicable to everyone. God justifies by faith, and he does so universally. There is no other way of salvation. The way of salvation is narrow. There is no substitute, but no one is shut out of that way. Paul specifically deals with this with the primary difference in his lifetime, the difference between Jews and Gentiles. And he specifically says that God justifies the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith. Now, don't let those two different prepositions hang you up as if faith acts different in a Jew and a Gentile. It doesn't. Paul's just using a little artful language. He'll use these prepositions in different ways in different portions of other books. The idea is the same. Faith receives the gift of God, salvation by grace, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile. And This is the greatest difference that Paul could have used. If he were speaking in our day, he may have said, God is the one who justifies African Americans by faith and Caucasians by faith. By native-born Americans by faith and immigrants by faith. Men by faith, women by faith, rich by faith, 
poor by faith. It doesn't matter who. All are justified only by faith. This salvation by grace is for everyone. Who can come to Jesus? Everyone. No one is excluded. So how do I have to come then? Might be your next question. Just like the old hymn writer wrote. Just as you are. It's not just a nice hymn. It's good theology. Because there is no preparation needed to come to God. Because you can bring nothing with you to boast in. Do you see Paul's point? If you can't boast in anything, how could you bring something? If we look at the Bible, people come to Jesus in all sorts of different ways. Some people, like Zacchaeus, come running, singing, and shouting. Others, like Nicodemus, come a little more cautiously, asking some questions. Still others come kicking and screaming, like the Apostle Paul. You see, if you can hear the words of the gospel today, you can come. Salvation by grace is for all. Well, when can I come? You can come at any time. There's no waiting. There's no preparation that needs to be made. It doesn't matter what your time of life is. You may think you're too young. No. If you understand that you're a sinner, that you do things that are wrong, and it makes you feel bad and guilty, and you need forgiveness, you can come to Jesus. You may think you're too old. You may say, but pastor, I've lived a long life, and I've done a lot of bad things. Life has just passed me by. No! Jesus receives all kinds of sinners. Remember, there is no boasting. There is nothing keeping you from Jesus. Again, I can't say it any better, so I'm going to quote the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Oh, my dear hearers, come to Jesus. Come in the morning when the dew is on your branch, for he will not cast you out. Come in the heat of noon, when the drought of care parches you, and he will not cast you out. Come when the shadows have grown long, and the darkness of night is gathering about you, for he will not cast you out. The door is not shut, for the gate of mercy closes not so long as the gate of life is open. Salvation by grace is for everyone. We conclude then this morning with the third implication of salvation by grace. That is, that it upholds the law. Now, because Paul has emphasized grace and faith, it's inevitable that someone's going to object, well, then the law has no purpose. It's worthless. And there are usually two forms of this objection. The first comes like this. I can do whatever I want because of grace. I have grace, so the law doesn't bind, and therefore I can sin all I would like. Or the second form of this objection says, that can't be right. That can't be true. And so because of that, Paul, your gospel can't be true. Now Paul takes this head on in verse 31. He asks the question and then answers as strongly as possible. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, this is once again Paul using this phrase, by no means, that we've seen translated, God forbid. 
It's the most negative statement in all of the Bible. There's no way that you can say no any stronger than this. You know, when I was growing up, there were grades of no. No. No way. No way, Jose. Right? You really take it to the nth degree. There's no more negative than you can get than this. Paul is thrusting aside this question. He says, it's ridiculous to think that salvation by grace undoes the law. He says, it's actually the opposite. Salvation by grace establishes or upholds the law. Now, how can this be the case? I think first we need to see that justification by grace shows that the law is so holy and so perfect that no one can fulfill it. And God hasn't done away with the law or changed its requirements. The law and its holy requirements remain in effect. That's what the gospel says. That all are sinners and all fall short of the glory of God. The law also requires punishment for sin. And the gospel upholds that punishment for sin. The punishment for sin is what? Death. We read that all the way back in Genesis 3. Now, God does not forgive sinners by doing away with the punishment. He fulfills the punishment by enacting it on Christ. We saw this last week in the concept of propitiation, God's wrath being satisfied by Jesus Christ. It's not that God says, well, I'll give you a mulligan. Oh, don't worry about that. Boys will be boys. No, God says sin must be punished. My law must be upheld. And the gospel makes that true in the sacrifice of Christ. Now, the other thing is that justification is more than just the payment of the penalty of the broken law. Justification is also receiving the righteousness of Christ. The Bible tells us that the righteousness of Christ is ours if we believe on Jesus. It's not just that we're not guilty. It's that we become righteous and holy in God's sight. Not because of anything we've done. We have nothing to boast in, Paul would say but because of what Jesus has done, the righteousness of God given to us. And so the law accomplishes this by Jesus. The reward of obedience to the law is upheld. And you see, the gospel upholds all of this. It doesn't do away with the law. If it did, there would be no righteousness of Christ to receive. If it did, there would be no punishment to be laid on Jesus. The gospel makes the law true. Now, salvation by grace also upholds the law in the life of the believer, the one who's saved. You see, the objection here comes that the saved person will simply just go on sinning. It's as if the only motivation for obedience is to get some kind of reward. And the assumption there is someone who's saved is unchanged by the work of God. They remain just as they were before they were saved. And so what happens is, you can't tell someone they're saved, you can't give them grace, you can't give them faith, because you've got to hold a little something back. You've got to have something held back to get work out of them. Now, this is a part of human nature, isn't it? We see this, I think, oftentimes in our families. 
What family has not used some form of this phrase? Well, you won't get dessert until you do this. Now, it could be finish your vegetables. It could be clean your room. It could be any number of things. But we hold dessert out. Because we know once we give the dessert, what happens? We're not going to get the vegetables finished. The room is probably going to stay messy. That's human nature. But you see, human nature doesn't count on the sanctifying, transforming work of God in Jesus Christ. We're made a different person. In fact, through salvation and the work of the Holy Spirit, you are actually enabled to obey the law. The righteousness that comes to us by free grace is the work of God. And it does not stop at a declaration of not guilty. You are able more and more to die to sin and live more and more unto righteousness. And so there is still no reason to boast because this is the work of God. This is not of yourself. It is the work of God in you. Do not ever separate the work of God in Christ, purchasing redemption, from the work of God in the Spirit, applying redemption. Salvation by grace is the great truth of the Bible. It's worth repeating over and over again. It is worth remembering the implications that it has in your life. It means that you can never boast in who you are or what you have done. But you can only boast in Jesus. It means that there is only one way of salvation. And that way is the way for everyone, every sort of person. And it means that God in this work upholds his law. Showing his righteousness in Christ's work. And also in the change that he makes in us. Salvation by grace is the great work of God in the lives of sinners. We give him all the praise, for he is worthy. Let's pray. 